0: Hello and welcome to Noise in the Groove: The Origin of Sound Recording. I'm Ramsey Janini and this is episode six, Dawn of the Talking Machines. In the last episode, We heard how, in its time, the phonograph was considered as an amalgamation of two important technological trajectories. It was both a talking machine as well as a sound writer. In this episode, we're going to begin an exploration of the former, as we sift the sands of history for talking machines. If you've been listening to this podcast from the beginning, you'll be well aware that producing the human voice, per se, was only one facet of the phonograph, but it was a crucial one. And as phonographs and gramophones, literally sound writers and writings of sounds, became commercially popular, they also became known colloquially and collectively as talking machines. It's a little curious, but telling, that while their official names referred only to their capacities to write sound, their colloquial names referred only to their capacities to produce sound. We still lack a word that covers both functions, which I feel points to the strangeness of these two capacities coming together in a single piece of technology as natural as the idea seems to us now. Preserving an actual human voice and producing a human-like voice were two very different functions with disparate cultural precedents. That being said, preserving voices was such a bizarre capacity that it had very few such precedents. Nevertheless, in the early history of phonography, a few stories would come up. One tale frequently told in relation to this aspect of the phonograph was an incident from Rudolf Erich Rasps' The Surprising Adventures of Baron Munchausen, where music gets frozen in a horn. In the story, as the frozen horn thaws, marches and popular tunes ring out as they were originally blown. A second tale often referenced, appearing in several variations, is said to have originated from ancient China. In the story, a beautiful woman sings into a bamboo tube, which is then sealed, magically, I guess. 1,000 years later, the tube is unsealed, and her song rings out as originally sung. A similar story told of an ancient Chinese wooden box that stored whispers and voices indefinitely. But in all of these stories, the voices and sounds were only heard once more, and there's no such story that I've come across where the stored sounds could be repeatedly played. I think this points to just how new and strange it was that the phonograph could repeatedly play back past sounds. But while the idea of storing or preserving sounds may have had a rather limited cultural history, the idea of a talking mechanism had a deep and rich history. In a sense, this trajectory has continued and is becoming increasingly relevant as time marches on. We have a desire to speak to our machines, and we want our machines to sound like us. This technological space of lust and narcissism is excellently captured in the film Her, where the protagonist in a dystopian future of sorts falls in love with his operating system, a sort of Siri meets Scarlett Johansson. The film pinpoints how natural it is to be seduced, both intellectually and sexually, by the human voice, and it reminds us to think about what exactly is going on when we sincerely or even jokingly thank technologies like Siri or Cortana for helping us out. I think Her compares interestingly with Kubrick's 2001, A Space Odyssey, where in contrast to a warm and loving world of interiority, 2001 presents a speaking AI as a cold and clinical exteriority, a peculiar menace that's at once from us in its construction as well as in its enjoyment of chess and polite conversation, but also an entity that will calmly kill us in the service of its own developing sense of logic and duty. Hal sings the song Daisy Bell as its life processes begin to shut down a tribute of sorts to the fact that Daisy Bell was the first known song sung by a computer. In 1961, an IBM at Bell Labs was programmed to sing the song as a demonstration of the outcomes of their speech synthesis research. Arthur C. Clarke, the author of the book that later became the film 2001, is said to have been at one of these demonstrations, and later chose to reference that cutting-edge technological moment in his book. One interesting connection to our story is that Daisy Bell was also one of the first songs sung by the phonograph. The song was originally written in 1892, and it was recorded for Cylinder as early as 1894, in a recording that still survives. Let's listen to a bit of that recording just to get in the mood. As Hal's song and processes slowly grind to a halt, we tell ourselves Professor Barrett's story that we too are merely mechanisms programmed for self-preservation. There is nothing artificial about our imagined AI. It's our dream of a soul that's been artificial all this time. Or so the story goes. But when did this story start? All these talking machines and whatnot. Dr. Spazzo, where's a good place to start? Can you elaborate more on that? Could you please help us get started? You don't have to be so polite. Where should we begin exploring the history of talking machines? Come on, pour out your thoughts. You were never very helpful, were you? Have you tried to ask for help? Q-U-I-T. When I am really smart, you are going to regret it. So, where do we begin? Well, let's begin on another therapist's couch. The reputable, esteemed, and high coke Dr. Sigmund Freud. You might have heard of the phrases the uncanny and the return of the repressed at some point. Well, they derive from an essay of Freud's called the uncanny. For Freud, the power of the uncanny, as experience and emotion, derives from the emergence or return of repressed memories and the fear of castration, obviously. He outlines these theories through an analysis of a short story by E.T.A. Hoffman called the Sandman. Hoffman lived between 1776 and 1822, and in those years he was a fantasy and horror author, a composer, a music critic, a caricaturist, a draftsman, and it seems whatever else he felt like being on any particular day. After The Sandman, his next most famous work is probably The Nutcracker, but as I've suggested, he did a lot more than write those two classics. Hoffman has influenced and inspired generations of artists and thinkers, including Angela Carter with her fantastic novel The Infernal Desire Machines of Dr. Hoffman, as well as Freud, Offenbach, Bergman, Tarkovsky, and many more. So, what's this Sandman about, and what does it have to do with sound recording? Well, let's relax on Freud's couch and listen to his summary of the story. By the way, Freud is going to speak for a little bit too long for the balance of the program. But it's a great story, and remember, cocaine is a hell of a drug. Part 1 This fantastic tale opens with the childhood recollections of the student Nathaniel. In spite of his present happiness, he cannot banish the memories associated with the mysterious and terrifying death of his beloved father. On certain evenings, his mother used to send the children to bed early, warning them that the Sandman was coming, and sure enough, Nathaniel would not fail to hear the heavy tread of a visitor, with whom his father would then be occupied for the evening. When questioned about the Sandman, his mother, it is true, denied that such a person existed except as a figure of speech, but his nurse could give him more definite information. He's a wicked man who comes when children won't go to bed and throws handfuls of sand in their eyes so that they jump out of their heads all bleeding." Then he puts the eyes in a sack, and carries them off to the half-moon to feed his children. They sit up there in their nest, and their beaks are hooked like owls' beaks, and they use them to pick up naughty boys' and girls' eyes with. Part 2 Although little Nathaniel was sensible, and old enough not to credit the figure of the Sandman with such gruesome attributes, yet the dread of him became fixed in his heart. He determined to find out what the Sandman looked like, and one evening, when the Sandman was expected again, he hid in his father's study. He recognized the visitor as the lawyer Coppelius, a repulsive person whom the children were frightened of when he occasionally came to a meal, and he now identified this Coppelius with the dreaded Sandman. As regards the rest of the scene, Hoffman already leaves us in doubt whether what we are witnessing is the first delirium of the panic-stricken boy, or a succession of events which are to be regarded in the story as being real. His father and the guest are at work at a brazier with glowing flames. The little eavesdropper hears Coppelius call out, Eyes here! Eyes here! and betrays himself by screaming aloud. Coppelius seizes him and is on the point of dropping bits of red-hot coal from the fire into his eyes and then of throwing them into the brazier, but his father begs him off and saves his eyes. After this, the boy falls into a deep swoon and a long illness brings his experience to an end. Those who decide in favor of the rationalistic interpretation of the Sandman will not fail to recognize in the child's fantasy the persisting influence of his nurse's story. The bits of sand that are to be thrown into the child's eyes turn into bits of red-hot coal from the flames, and in both cases they are intended to make his eyes jump out. In the course of another visit of the Sandman's, a year later, his father is killed in his study by an explosion. The lawyer Coppelius disappears from the place without leaving a trace behind. Part 3 Nathaniel, now a student, believes that he has recognized this phantom of horror from his childhood in an itinerant optician, an Italian called Giuseppe Coppola, who at his university town offers him weather glasses for sale. When Nathaniel refuses, the man goes on, Not weather glasses, not weather glasses, also got fine eyes, fine eyes. The student's terror is allayed when he finds out that the proffered eyes are only harmless spectacles, and he buys a pocket spyglass from Coppola. With its aid, he looks across into Professor Spallanzani's house opposite, and there spies Spallanzani's beautiful but strangely silent emotionless daughter, Olympia. He soon falls in love with her so violently that, because of her, he quite forgets the clever and sensible girl to whom he is betrothed. But Olympia is an automaton whose clockwork has been made by Spallanzani, and whose eyes have been put in by Coppola, the Sandman. The student surprises the two masters quarreling over their handiwork. The optician carries off the wooden eyeless doll, and the mechanician Spallanzani picks up Olympia's bleeding eyes from the ground and throws them at Nathaniel's breast, saying that Coppola had stolen them from the student. Nathaniel succumbs to a fresh attack of madness, and in his delirium his recollection of his father's death is mingled with his new experience. Hurry up, hurry up, ring a fire, he cries. Spin about, ring a fire, hurrah. Hurry up, wooden doll, lovely wooden doll, spin about. He then falls upon the professor, Olympia's father, and tries to strangle him. Part 4 Rallying from a long and serious illness, Nathaniel seems at last to have recovered. He intends to marry his betrothed, with whom he has become reconciled. One day he and she are walking through the city marketplace, over which the high tower of the town hall throws its huge shadow. On the girl's suggestion, they climb the tower, leaving her brother, who is walking with them, down below. From the top, Clara's attention is drawn to a curious object moving along the street. Nathaniel looks at this thing through Coppola's spyglass, which he finds in his pocket, and falls into a new attack of madness. Shouting, spin about, wooden doll, he tries to throw the girl into the gulf below. Her brother, brought to her side by her cries, rescues her and hastens down with her to safety. On the tower above, the madman rushes about shrieking, ring of fire, spin about, and we know the origin of the words. Among the people who begin to gather below there comes forward the figure of the lawyer Coppelius, who has suddenly returned. We may suppose that it was his approach, seen through the spyglass, which threw Nathaniel into his fit of madness. As the onlookers prepare to go up and overpower the madman. Coppelius laughs and says, wait a bit, he'll come down of himself. Nathaniel suddenly stands still, catches sight of Coppelius, and with a wild shriek, yes, fine eyes, fine eyes, flings himself over the parapet. While he lies on the paving stones with a shattered skull, the Sandman vanishes in the throng. It's a story of warning, of the capacity of technology to seduce and bring ruin. And like her in 2001, It's a story about an increasingly thin line between humanity and machinery. Hoffman didn't create Olympia out of a vacuum. She was born into a world fascinated with the capacity and potential of machines to imitate and even replace organic life. Moreover, people of his world weren't just writing about automatons, they were building them too. The history of automatons is incredibly rich and deep. In Christian and Islamic traditions, the idea can be traced to Hellenistic Greece. The Greeks were fascinated with mechanisms and automatons, which featured both in their mythology as well as technology. One of the most amazing surviving, more or less, pieces of really all of history is a mechanism from Hellenistic Greece known as the Antikythera Mechanism, which is essentially the first known analog computer. It seems to have been used to make complex calculations of the movement of astronomical objects. However, while computing was put on hold for a couple thousand years or so, the fascination with automatons lived on and flourished in both the Islamic and Christian empires that followed, to say nothing of equally rich traditions in ancient China, India, Japan, and in many other cultures as well. Perhaps as a tool-using species, we have some sort of innate obsession with at least thinking about, if not constructing, robots. The automatons of the 18th century were complex and expensive pieces of machinery, and their makers, well the most famous at least, would make livelihoods out of either winning the patronage of a noble, creating exhibitions with their inventions, or both. With respect to the long tradition I've mentioned, the automatons of the 18th century started doing something new. They began to replicate not only the outer appearances of life, but also its inner functionality. This certainly related to the increasing presence of mechanism in European thought, and perhaps most iconically, to René Descartes' notion that every function in the body, if not the mind, could be replaced or imitated with a cog, bolt, screw, or other such mechanical substitute. These ideas would lead to Jacques de Vaucanson's famous Digesting Duck of 1739. This duck, like another famous automaton of the era that we'll get to in a minute, was actually something of a hoax. The thing is, although it ate food and defecated, it didn't actually digest. Instead, it had a separate compartment that released greenish and by all accounts realistic duck turds. I suppose it seems an obvious trick to us, but once you noticed the 400 moving parts in each flapping wing, well, I suppose you were more inclined to give it the benefit of the doubt. In contrast with the wonderful world of writing, bell-playing, cuckooing, and moving automatons that had come before it, this duck, at least ostensibly, was imitating an internal bodily process. Some 30 years later, Wolfgang von Kempelen's The Turk, the other great 18th century automaton hoax, would suggest a mechanical reproduction of that holy grail of internal processes, thought. Von Kempelen lived between 1734 and 1804, and in that time he was an author, inventor, composer, engineer, poet, artist, and architect. He is best known for two of his inventions. The first of the two was The Turk, which was presented to Maria Teresa of Austria in 1769. She would have seen a mechanical head and torso dressed in Turkish attire sitting behind a large cabinet. On the cabinet sat a chessboard, and from 1769 until its destruction by fire in 1854, the automaton played and defeated almost everyone who challenged it to a game of chess. It defeated both Napoleon and Benjamin Franklin, and in its time it traveled throughout Europe, across the United States, and even over to Cuba. The automaton didn't just play chess, it could also communicate by spelling words and also through nodding, which it would do to signal a threat to a queen or king. And if a player tried an illegal move against it, the Turk would return the piece to its original place and then take its turn. Von Kempelen, like any good magician, was happy to open the cabinet to reveal that there wasn't a trick involved. In fact, there was. The machine was operated by a series of, presumably small, chess masters, but many long years passed before the hoax was revealed. It's perhaps partly due to this long tradition of elaborate mechanical hoaxes that many people were initially suspicious of the phonograph, thinking that it might simply be a trick of ventriloquism. But all things being equal, I perhaps would not have mentioned the Turk in this podcast were it not for the fact that as soon as von Kempelen finished the Turk, he began working on a speaking machine. Whereas the Turk only took six months to construct, his speaking machine took 20 years, the rest of his life. von Kempelen took the path of imitating speech as it leaves the body, which led him to construct an apparatus involving bellows, bagpipes, clarinet bells, reeds, and many more intricate parts. He would have been familiar with the legends that Albertus Magnus and Roger Bacon had succeeded as far back as the 13th century in creating speaking automatons, and that their machines had been deemed devilish and dangerous by church authorities, who sent goons like St. Thomas Aquinas to find and destroy them like some sort of monastic Blade Runner. Hmm, there might be a film there. They were great stories, but they only provided inspiration, and weren't any help in any practical sense. He more or less had to start from scratch. And after long years of study and trial and error, he constructed a machine that could replicate both vowel sounds as well as consonants, and with a skilled operator could speak complete if monotonous phrases in French, Italian, English, and German. Von Kempelen died shortly after exhibiting his final version of the speaking machine in 1804, which he released along with a 456-page book outlining his discoveries and research, including every technical aspect of his device. While contemporaries of Kempelin had also achieved limited success in similar areas, it was von Kempelin's body of work that would largely inspire the next generation of obsessive men to take up the cause of the speaking machine. In the next episode, we'll find out who picked up a copy of von Kempelin's tome and carried his torch into the dark future. As ever, if you have any comments about anything you've heard in this episode, please post them on the website at noiseinthegroove.com and you can also send me a personal message there. But for now, so long, and thank you for listening.